we are going to start on the encouraging verses that follow that. But let's begin, first of all, with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for the opportunity to gather with Christian brothers and sisters to open up the Scriptures, to encourage one another, to look to You for help to meet our needs. And Lord, may our hearts and minds be encouraged by Your Word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, today we are on verse 9, Hebrews chapter 6, and we're beginning today with verse 9. Let me read the paragraph, and then we're going to to look up a bunch of cross-references. I have a lot of cross-references because there just are a lot. Hebrews 6, 9, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love with which love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. We desire that each of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So, this section here actually is part of what gave me the clue to how I wanted to interpret the passage about apostasy. Because I noticed when I was reading this that the author of Hebrews was actually convinced that the Hebrews were not apostate, that they hadn't departed from the faith and they were not without hope. And he's actually commending them for their previous zeal in serving God. So, that being the case, I decided that the warning is something that he expected would actually be effective. That these guys weren't going to, or people weren't going to depart from the faith, but they would be encouraged by the warning that God gave them and be diligent so that they will not fall back. We're also going to see that in other warning passages, he also follows with a note of encouragement and hope. So, and one of those is in Hebrews 10. So let's get get to our cross references here. Um, the, what the passage, verse nine, says, "But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Better than what? Better. What do you think that means? Better than." What we were just talking about? Yeah, better than apostasy. We don't think that that's true of you. Then things that accompany salvation. He just warned them about being impossible to come back if you did apostatize. So he's not doubting their salvation and acknowledges that he's speaking in a very strong way. Okay. Uh, Dean, if you could uh, look up 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. 2 Corinthians 7 10. We had a fan going, so I'm, I'm, I, we'll have to all speak up if we want to hear each other. Um, we could turn the fan off. I thought I'd get that response. I figured. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm uh, Floyd? Boyd. That's right. I knew that. I just forgot. Philippians 1, 6 and 7. And then Troy, 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 4. 
And Mary, Hebrews 10.39. Okay, 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Godly sorrow causes or works repentance. And I think the reason that's a cross-reference here is that this um, passage about the dire consequences of falling away from God is designed to create a godly sorrow when someone would look at their own life and realize that they're not being diligent in their faith and hopefully such godly sorrow will cause Repentance. But what did it say? The world was the rest of the part? Um, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Okay. So the sorrow that we have when we see that we've fallen short of what God has called us to is a good thing. The sorrow of the world is probably just being sorry that you didn't get what you wanted or that life isn't as good as you wish it was, and there's no hope in that. So there's hope in godly sorrow. Philippians 1, 6 and 7. Yeah, that's in Philippians, which I'm going to begin preaching through starting this Sunday uh, when I'm into the epistles. And it says that he who began a good work will perfect it or complete it. So God doesn't, God finishes his business. God doesn't start something and then not finish it. So there would be hope in that, that if God started a work in our life, he'll certainly complete it. Do you believe that is true? <laughs> I believe it's true. Well, God is going to do something to make sure we do, even if it means um, putting us through some severe discipline. We could try to, try to thwart it, but it's... Uh, there's no good reason to do that. <laughs> Just make life miserable. Okay, let's what's one Thessalonians one, three through four, Troy? Okay. Uh it talks about their labor of love, remembering their labor of love because they and knowing that they were chosen by God. And so here it talks about um, knowing the fact that you have a relationship with God and the fact that one time in your life you were serving Him is reason for hope that God will complete His work. Hebrews 10.30... Oh, yes, Dick. Yes. They put it, they assume there's an implied if in there that Paul didn't say. 
they, they would have, I used to read it that way. Well, there, he will complete it if, if I do my part. They're, they're assuming that's implied. Now, whether it is or isn't implied depends on how you understand the whole rest of the Bible. I wonder if the fan was on medium, would we be okay? I'm, I feel like I have to absolutely shout for anybody to hear me, and then I, I, we can't hear when the other people are reading their verses. Don't worry, this problem is going to get better soon. The winter's coming. <laughs> See, we always have hope in Minnesota. We know winter is never far behind. If we can go to medium, yeah, there we go. Now I want to be people to be able to hear the word. What's that? <laughs> Okay, um, Hebrews 10.39. Isn't that interesting that in the same order, in Hebrews 6, severe warning, and it says, but I'm convinced of better things concerning you. Hebrews 10, severe warning, even it's almost more devastating in Hebrews 10, the warning, but yet it says we are not those who shrink back. So, in the Scripture, people who are Christians are given severe warnings. Why? Yeah, to, to keep us from what would happen if we did do these things. You know, there's no... The, the promise isn't... Let me... Reiterate, I've said this hundreds of times, but because there's so much confusion theologically in the world, I need to say it again. The promise isn't that we'll be saved in the midst of our apostasy and our rebellion and go to heaven as apostates. God doesn't promise that. The promise is He'll save us from apostasy by using the warning. Do you see the difference? We're not, we don't have some crass doctrine that says that you can live like the devil and blaspheme God and just, you're on your way through the pearly gates. That's not, I don't see that promise in the Bible. The promise is that God will do a work to preserve us from that sort of thing. And that if we fall into it, He'll pull us out of it. The warning is part of the means that God uses. Yes? No, I don't think Jehovah's Witnesses ever came to faith because they have a different Jesus. They believe in Jesus, but He's not the Jesus of the Bible, so I don't know how you can be saved without believing in the Jesus of the Bible. Their Jesus is a created being. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they they had they have a different doctrine of Christ, so I don't know how you can be saved with that. People get saved out of the Jehovah's Witnesses. We have some videotapes in the library of people that were. Very interesting testimonies. There's one in there like hundred and five years of watchtower service, and that's adding up between three people. And the the people that had grown up in Jehovah's Witnesses and got saved out of it. Very interesting tape. Um, look, let's look at, uh, so evidently the, these Hebrew Christians had been at one point, um, very exemplary. Um, Dick, could you look up Hebrews 10, 32 through 34, where it explains how they had been? 
Yeah. Continual warnings. In fact, earlier in Hebrews, we were reading um, in Hebrews 3 and 4 are warnings that are pulled right out of the Old Testament, out of the wilderness wanderings from Psalm 95 and Deuteronomy, I mean, excuse me, Numbers 14. And they were the same way. They had um, simultaneously, they were promised blessings and warned about judgment, right? And it's continued both and, not either or. And now some people think it has to be either or, and then they end up being amillennialists because they think that the because Israel broke the promises, they're all gone. Or broke their covenant, it's all gone. There are no promises. But I don't believe that. I believe both things are true. Yeah, even in the Old Testament, whenever they turn to the Lord, He'd bring bring them back in the covenant faithfulness, like Josiah in the Old Testament did. Yeah, it didn't ever last, did it? It never lasted. And uh, well, it's the sin nature, I guess. Yeah, we leak. Okay, so what was Hebrews ten thirty-two to thirty-four? Now, that's their past behavior. They had suffered for the gospel. They'd had their property taken away because of their faith. They had visited people who had been in prison because of their faith. So, they had actually, these Hebrews that are addressed here, had lived exemplary lives. Yes. Oh, really? Maybe the ACLU will step in on that. Yeah, if they cuss, maybe it'd be all right. Okay. So we're, we're coming into the same kind of era that they lived in back then. All right, let's go to verse 10. Hebrews 6 and verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. So the passage Dick read just gave explicitly some ways that they had ministered to the saints, including sticking up for people who were persecuted at the cost of their own reputation. So God won't forget your work and your love and the fact that you ministered to the saints. I have a bunch of cross-references. Cladoris. Um, Deuteronomy 32.4, Norm, Matthew 10.42, and Kathy 
Mark 9.41, and um, Lois, Acts 10.31. That's enough for now. I think I got one I want to look up too. Okay, when you found it, find it, Deuteronomy 32.4. That's a, yeah, that's a lot of nice uh, ways of describing that God is just. And it says, without injustice. And it says in our passage, God is not unjust so as to forget. The only perfectly just being in the universe is God. Right? And that it simultaneously is a reassuring thing and it is a scary thing. That's why we need to know the gospel. If you read the the biography of Martin Luther, you you see a guy who truly understood the justice of God and it tormented him most of his life. He knew for a fact that God was just. He never doubted that in his Roman Catholic days. He knew God was just and that's why he knew he was in trouble and he could find no relief from his fear of God's justice until he read Romans. And he saw that the just shall live by faith. And that God is one who satisfied his own demands for justice through sending Christ to bear the penalty. And that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us by faith. And that's justification by faith. Now, having been forgiven by God and having received mercy... And having understood the gospel that Jesus Christ took for God's justice for us so that we could have the gift of righteousness, then, then, this becomes a beloved, wonderful promise that God's just. Rather than a horrible threat and a horrible fear of facing the judge, now we have the fact that God's just as, as a, uh, a promise, as a hope. For several reasons. Number one is we live in a wicked and perverse world and we wonder if God's ever going to deal with it. When's going, God going to bring up forth justice and, and, and punish the wicked who torment the righteous day and night? That's the Old Testament theme. Also, we can look forward to the fact that having our sins forgiven, now we can come and know God not just as the just judge, but as our, the one who loves us and uh, as our beloved God. So there's a lot of reasons the topic of the justice of God is very important. So that's a, that's a good verse. That was Deuteronomy 32.4 about how just God is. How about Matthew 10.42? And whosoever gives one reason to one, So if you give a cup of cold water to a disciple in his name, you won't lose your reward. Good idea. Maybe we should serve one another. Do you think that's true? Amen. Why is that true? Because Christian service is always done in faith and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It says, if you give a cup of cold water in my name. In other words, you're doing this on behalf. And I'm going to read a passage that shows why in the judgment of Matthew 25. But if you are doing something for wrong motives, there's no reward. Remember the earlier in Matthew where it says um, in Matthew 6, they, do, they give long prayers out on the street corners to be seen of men? Well, they've had their reward. In other words, God won't reward that. The reward is the glory of man. Somebody saw you, and that's your reward. You're not going to get any reward in heaven. Okay? And so, something done um, without a really expecting reward, something done because we love God, and we see somebody who is one of God's creatures, be they Christian or not, and we show compassion to them, is something that God will reward because it's done for the sake of Christ. Yeah, and so the motive is really the key. Done in His name not only means by His authority, but in keeping with His character, because His character is revealed in His name. So it's a Christ-like service. Okay, so Kathy, you have the one Mark nine forty-one. Okay, that's just a, a synoptic parallel of the passage we just were looking at. So, how about Acts ten thirty one? Okay, <laughs> that was a very good verse, but it wasn't the one we're looking for. Yeah, other than the King James is a little cumbersome. Your alms have been remembered before God, it says. Um, in, uh, in other words, that God sees the good deeds of this Cornelius. And uh, he was a God-fearing man, but he didn't understand fully the way of righteousness. And so God arranged these, the vision, the angels. He had to do a lot of work, supernatural work, to get Peter to go preach to Gentiles. Because had the Lord left the early Jewish church to their own understanding of things, the Gospel would not have gone to the Gentiles. Do you see that? And not because Jesus didn't tell them that it would go to the outermost parts of the earth. He did. It's not that the Old Testament didn't tell them to evangelize the pagans and that Messiah would go to the pagans. It did. But that because of their whole thousands of years of history of being persecuted by the nations and the fact that the vast majority of all people that believed in the God of the Bible were the Jews, and there was just a handful of proselytes that had ever joined them. They had no expectation that there would be any value whatsoever to go to Gentiles. 
and, it, and that God was going to save Gentiles. It just wasn't, even though they'd heard it, they didn't get it. And so in order to cause this to actually happen, we have Acts 10 of Peter falling into a trance in the middle of the day, um, seeing his vision of the unclean foods coming down and being told to eat. And he still wouldn't have gotten it. But then an angel shows up and talks to him. And an angel went and talked to him beforehand and prepared Cornelius. And God did all of this just to get Peter to go there. And so once he got there, he preached the gospel. And then the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles in the same way that he fell on the Jews at Pentecost. And all it took all of that to convince Peter, oh, God saves Gentiles. And then he had to go justify himself in front of all the other apostles who were going to be upset about it. He says, he told the whole story. He says, well, what was I to do? So I baptized him. You baptized Gentiles? Yeah. And then they had to have a council in Jerusalem in Acts 15 to decide what to do with these Gentiles. And so it took a supernatural act of God for the Jewish church to understand that there were actually going to be Gentiles as part of the family of God. And isn't it so ironic that now we have the total opposite situation that it's hard to convince Gentile Christians that God will save Jews? And it's hard to get Gentiles to even preach the gospel to the Jews because they don't think any of them will believe it. Do you see, that? see how it's an ironic reversal of the situation of the early church? And we need, like they did, to go to the Gentiles. We need to go to the Jews with the gospel. Because God will save them. I'm going to make a tie this into that thing, but the thought that crossed my mind was that God's chosen people, whether it be the Jewish nation of Israel or the church, God's people are hesitant to share. Whereas in a false religion such as uh, Islam, it's you either convert or you die. And yeah. you by force. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, and then the people in cults work harder to gain converts than, than anybody you can imagine. Of course, part of the reason for that is they're told that that's how they, well, they have to do that to be saved, this salvation by works. But we're, we're motivated by the love of God. Look at this. I'm going to read Matthew 25, starting with verse 35. We're talking about this. God is not unjust so as to forget your labor of love or your service that you give to the Lord by serving other people in the name of Jesus. Look at this, this uh, discussion about rewards. Matthew 25, 25. Wait a second here. 35, 35, excuse me. 20, 25, 35. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? Is I think that that's very telling. The people who are being rewarded didn't even know they did anything. And I have seen that all my Christian life as some of the most uh, wonderful, exemplary Christians. If you, if you say to them anything like, how you notice how they serve God and you appreciate it, they just go, what did I do? I'm not really doing anything. That's just how... But that's because God has worked graciously in their hearts so that they, have, they, they aren't like the people in Matthew 6 that are trumpeting their thing before men. And, they don't, and, they, and it isn't a show either because they really don't believe they did anything. 
they really don't think they did much. And I think that people like that are just, we're all conscious that we're sinners. And we're all conscious that we don't do way less than we probably should. And so we tend to think that way. But people, God will say, you did more than you knew. You visited me. Well, no, I didn't. Well, you did. Let, let's see the rest of the story. Uh, they asked this, when did we see you? When did we see you sick? When did we do this? And the king will say to them, I, tr- I, I say to you, to the extent you did it to the least of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Wow. The least. So we don't have to have a sign on us saying, I am giving you a drink of water because of the Lord. We don't have to wear a sandwich sign that says, I'm doing good deeds for Jesus. You'd probably lose your reward if you did that. Yes, Kathy. Well, the Jews have the concept of the righteous Gentile, which would be the people that, for instance, during World War II, tried to save the Jews from Nazi Germany. And the people that, they, they see the value of good deeds. Now, we know that good deeds are not going to earn us our salvation. We do good deeds to honor our Lord and to live a way that would bring honor to His name. But the Jewish people do see the difference. I, I got a, what was the deal? Max, my Jewish friend, was telling me that something had happened. There was a tragedy. I can't remember what it was. But they had received a gift of money from a Christian church to their synagogue. This guy, Max. And he, and he told me about that. And he also told me another story. Now, these people were just not Christians as we would probably know, although God knows the heart. But he told me that when he... Um, wanted to try to get, he was a World War II veteran. He's 87, by the way, Max. You still see him driving down the street. And then, well, I know one eye you can't see out of, so I always worry about my truck when I see him going down the street. But, <laughs> you know, he, he, he brings Russian immigrants to synagogue with him. Max was saying this, after World War II, when he came back here, he couldn't get a loan. There was, in, in the late 40s, there was, there was heavy, prejudice against Jews, even in Minneapolis and um, some of the suburbs. He said, you could not buy a house in Edina if you were a Jewish person in 1947, no matter how much money you had. And so they, they moved to St. Louis Park simply because that, they were accepted in St. Louis Park. They weren't in some of the other suburbs. And he couldn't get a loan. He wanted to try to start a business. And some German Catholics loaned him the money because they had, just out of their feelings of sorrow of what had happened to the Jewish people in World War II, and that this guy was a World War II veteran, had served in the, in the Navy, and these, these Jewish, I mean, these German Catholics loaned him the money to start a business, which was Slumberland on Excelsior Boulevard. And he owned that, and he made a living running that all his life until he sold it when he retired. And those people always looked after him. And he told me that story one time. They'd notice, if you, and that's why I think that when we talk about Jewish evangelism, pre, gospel preaching obviously is first and foremost, but these deeds that are done by Christians toward Jews have an impact. They really do, because my, 
my friend uh, Max notices those things. They, they notice very much how Christians treat, treat them. Because they don't expect it. They expect to be persecuted. So, um, take it to heart. You did this to the least of these, my brother, and you did it unto me. Something to be taken to heart. Um, let's go to... Well, i got some more cross-references here. Let's, uh, Samuel, uh, Romans 15, 25-27. Norma, 1 Corinthians 16, 1-3. Artis, Galatians 6:10, Peter, 1 Thessalonians 1-3. I know this is a lot of cross-references, but there's a reason why there's so many of these in the Bible. It's important. <laughs> it's an important theme. It's, it's important what we believe, but it's also important what we do. Yes. Talking about work, doing work. Uh, something I've heard for years, uh, always wondered about. Your people will say, "Well, I know a lot of people who are not Christians do more work than Christians." They, they might be, you know, really unregenerate people, but they take care of themselves and their their group and all that. So there are people who think that Christians' works are in many ways. Okay, um, and just to repeat it, I think it's a good, good comment and question, that there are many people who think that there's a lot of Christians that live better and do many good works, which there are. Non-Christians. Yeah, a lot of non-Christians who do exemplary things, and they have benevolent societies, and they care for their own, and they care for the needy. That's definitely true. So what's the distinction, I think, would be the question part of that. Well, the distinction is this. First and foremost... Christians know up front that none of our works is going to merit salvation. Okay? That we're not saved by works. And we're the only people that believe that. Though every other world religion believes in works. But Christianity believes in salvation by grace through faith. Only us, alright? So, that is a distinction in our belief. As far as our behavior, people... I I would like to think that Christians are good citizens. If they aren't, they're not listening to Jesus. Uh, remember, I, I I had an article published in the Star and Trib about that. That see, the atheists will point to this sort of thing and say, "Well, we go out and we're good citizens and what have you," and the Christians aren't. Uh, I don't believe that that's true. For one, I grew I grew up in a town where everybody in the town was in church. Not all born again Christians, but a lot of them were. And in those in that small area where I was from, I these people compared to living here in a city, it was like heaven on earth. How people behaved, just about I could say without with very few exceptions that if I in fact this was true, I'd land I'd end up in town and I couldn't get home because the wind came up too strong. I couldn't ride my bike back to the farm. I'd just knock on a door. It didn't matter which door. It didn't matter. Well, I don't know, here's the door, knock on the door. And they'd help you. No matter who it was. I don't know if I'd do that around here. <laughs> okay, so I think in some cases, people in churches that are Christian tend to be fairly good citizens. I wouldn't say we're worse than the rest. Now, what about the righteous sinners, quote-unquote? The sinners who do benevolent things. That's not surprising. The Pharisees did. The um, And there are people just have an ethic of being good people and doing good things. 
Okay, that's okay, but it's not going to earn salvation. It doesn't prove Christianity wrong, because Christianity isn't saying this. We're not saying you must be a Christian in order to do good deeds. If we were claiming that, that would be evidence against it. But we're not claiming that. In fact, that's why I think so much gospel. Now I'm going to preach. I, 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 was, at an, I was at an outreach yesterday hearing a lot of bad... Pre- you were there. A lot of bad... We were just talking. Where's the gospel? We had person after person getting up saying, well, I was a bad person and now I'm a Christian and now I'm a good person. That's basically about that. I used to beat my wife. Now I'm a Christian. And now I'm going to church. Now my life is good. And I heard that over and over and over again. Okay, I'm not doubting that what these people said is true, that they used to be bad people, now they're Christians, now they're good people. But what isn't true is that it's necessary for to be a Christian for that to happen. There are people who used to beat their wives that don't anymore that aren't Christian. There are people that used to take drugs that don't anymore that aren't Christians. There are people that used to be lazy drunkards that are now upstanding, hardworking citizens that aren't Christians. So, if we're saying that you have to be a Christian in order to have good works and be a better person, we're lying. The Bible does not say that. What the Bible says is that you have to be a Christian for any of your works to be pleasing to God. Does that make sense? And so, we are not really telling people the truth. What What's necessary is that our sins be washed away by the blood of Jesus. You can't get that at the Rotary Club. You can't get that at AA. You can't get that at Weight Watchers. You can't get that at whatever self-betterment thing there is out there to make you a better person. You can't get that at a group therapy for violent and abusive people. You can only get that through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So we've got to give them the unique thing first. The changed life is a consequence of that. And it's something that says that God is a good God and He's kind and gracious. And it's true that He changed my life. But the world can always point to other people that are doing just as well without Christ. And they use that as an excuse why they don't need Him. So that's why we have to preach about sin and repentance. Because they don't think they need Jesus. They think they can better themselves on their own behalf. Well, some eventually we got it again. The same guy came to the rescue. And you were gone by then, Dean. But um, this, again, I, I finally got tired of the, you know, I got a better life because I'm a Christian and not the, anything about the blood atonement and repentance and sin. So I went, came back here and worked at the church for a couple hours because the sound was under control. When I got back, guess who I saw there? The same guy who was at the soul liberation thing that finally preached the gospel, this, this Hispanic guy. And I go... Oh, you're here! I went and gave him a big hug, and he and uh, I, I talked to Mike Pila, who was in charge of the thing. I said, I know that I want to get to know that guy. So I had lunch with him. He was he's with the Lewis Palau organization, which I didn't know, and he's from Colorado. And so you know that gives them a one brownie point in my book, I guess. They got him. And so this guy, are you going to preach? Oh yeah, I'm going to preach. So he got up. He got up and preach out of Hebrews 11, only a different passage this time than he did at the other one. Uh, and But then it started, it was supposed to be English and Spanish, and pretty soon it was just all Spanish, so I was kind of losing it. He got so excited, all the Hispanic people were kind of getting around him. You know, and they had another guy interpreting. 
Well, pretty soon it was just a Hispanic crowd, so he just started doing everything basically in Spanish at the end. And that was good, and he got out there and was praying for people. But then one of the local pastors got up, and he went, I thought he was, I thought we were going to have to call 911 because he's going to have a heart attack. <laughs> and this guy was like, yelling and screaming, the Holy Ghost is going to get you now! I'm going, shut up! Tell Brad, Brad is pulling down the, the, the fader on the sound. He's yelling, he's pulling down, he yells so hard, pulling down. He's, like, he's going to blow our speakers. He's one of these guys that figure if you don't shout, God can't do anything, you know? So it kind of, to me, kind of ruined what this other guy had done so well. So that's my story. Anyhow, thanks to you that helped. Pete, uh, you did some good deeds. You won't lose your reward. <laughs> he basically about burned his hands. He about burned his hands off turning sweet corn in a big fire. So Pete was helping. Dean, um, some others showed up. Thank you. We we did give out some cup of cold water there. So that's my um, report from the outreach. Yeah, it's an adventure. Okay, we had some other passages. Sam? Oh. Yeah. A lot of people do good works and pump themselves up. A Christian is doing good works and hopefully they get the praise to, to God. Well, that's the fundamental difference. I mean, there is really no, in God's scheme of things, an unbeliever never actually truly does a good work. Because we may look at it from our perspective that it is a, a helping out a couple of ladies across the street that is noble. Yeah, I think the distinction to be made is good or good and righteous type can be used two ways in the Bible. When it when it's man vis-a-vis God, then only that which is of faith prevails. That's not of faith is sin. Now it is used in a general sense when you compare one human to another, and there is a distinction between good and evil that way. I mean, it's good to work and pay your taxes and be a good citizen compared to other persons who wouldn't be willing to do that. So comparing man to man, there's a difference between good and bad. But when you compare yourself to God, the only good that comes from faith, not from us. Okay, let's get our cross-references. We had, did I give, uh, what did I give you, Sam? 1 Corinthians 16? 16. Oh, Romans 15, 25. Yeah, oh, Romans 15, 25, yeah.
Uh, amen. So there, there is the Macedonia, where Philippi. I'm going to talk about Philippi today. But that's they sent money to help the saints in Jerusalem, and that was one of Paul's projects to help unify the Jewish and Gentile churches. That the Gentiles would give a love gift to help the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, so that the church would be unified and not split into two factions. And that Paul is commending that. That shows that they're exemplary Christians that they're willing to do that. It is absolutely exemplary and something to be commended for us to do good works, for us to give, for us to serve, for us to um, express our thanks to the Lord for saving us by serving His people. Yeah, amen. And reaching out to the lost and to the hurting. And so that is a good thing. That's why I'm willing to participate in these citywide outreaches, I think it's a good thing for Christians to do, even though I'm a little bit disappointed every time that we don't have a little better preaching. But, you know, I'm still willing to participate in, um, for the sake of the Gospel and the, the sake of showing Christian charity, which is, a, which is a, something that God wants us to do. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-3. through 3. Yep. So they're being commended for liberality and uh, a willingness to give and to contribute. Galatians 6.10 Well, there, that says it all right there. I think we could have just had that one verse and had this whole message here. As we have opportunity, do good to all right? Especially those of the household of faith. So we're told two things. We should do good toward the lost. And so it is valid to do charitable deeds in the context of the gospel, right? Do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. So we have a particular responsibility to care for other Christians because we're of a family. You've got to take care of your own family. But that doesn't mean you don't help the neighbor. You get the idea? So there it is. You can't get away from that, that this is a biblical ethic. Yes? That's Galatians 6.10. There's a fantastic verse on this topic that we're talking about. Galatians 6.10. To do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Especially Christians. 1 Thessalonians 1.3, Pete. There's, the, there's that labor of love. The labor of love. So the Christian is to, out of love, serve, give, and what have you. Um, I think one other, as long as we're on this topic, one other issue that I, I don't know what's, if there's an answer to, but I wonder about it. How much of this is private in the sense that just as individual Christians, we go about our life, we do these things. And how much of it is to be organized? 
and and I I'm not sure. Sometimes I think what we tend to do in America is make everything an organized deal. All right, to to start great big corporations and you know whatever whatever we tend to in America we do that whether that's right or wrong it's just how we operate in America. Let's just we'll read this and say well it would be a good thing to give a bread to the poor. Well then we start a bread to the poor corporation 501c3 raise $10 million, hire a director, send it all over the United States, put it on the radio, and, and some bread does get to the poor, but you end up with millions of dollars going to run the organization. Okay? Well, I'm talking about, in general, how we do our good deeds as Christians. Okay? Whether, whether they're done sort of in a real loose, kind of a, how much organization do we need to do it? Now the Bible doesn't even. I mean, you can be organized. I'm not thinking. I'm not saying it's a sin. I just wonder sometimes, as far as the bigger scheme of things, the use of God's resources. What's the best? Is it the best to have to see every time you have an idea to make it as big as you can, and to get a world headquarters built, and have all this overhead, or should we just do these things more spontaneously, as you say, or loose? You know, just Smaller organizations without a lot of overhead where the actual money that comes in actually goes to doing what you want to do. Okay, Ryan and then Pete. I think one of the things that I think everyone needs to do when thinking about that is examine themselves. What is the Yeah. I think no, that's one of the best things. Not necessarily that, um, like you said, organization's wrong. I think that's fine. If really the heart is, okay, I want to get this set up and I really want to make a difference and yeah. see through it work. Or is it something else? And I think that really comes back to, I think one of the good starting points is start, start private. Start, you know, yeah. start there before you start some big organization. Yeah, Pete. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Well, then you also get. The bigger something gets, just out of necessity, the more efficient, or I mean, the more organizational clout it needs, and you need to hire a director. When people, people with the ability to run a really large corporation are expensive, because there aren't very many people who can do it. So, I mean, they've had some stuff in the paper about this. Some of these charitable organizations where the director's pulling down 250,000 a year, and they've got. Uh, in some in some cases, these organizations are like 80% overhead and 20%. Um, and there's everything in between. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with being organized, but I think in America we probably take it to an extreme. Well, look at the Lord and the Apostles. You know, when he, when they were going about 
it was more hands-on. Well, it is, of course, a different era of history, but this collection for the saints was organized. Paul talked about in Corinthians and make sure somebody with a, uh, who's reputable has charge of the money so that we don't have any scandals and, and things like that. And so there was an organization, so to speak. But I think in America we've taken it to an extreme as far as... Uh, and then the thing ends up being, well... The organization lives on way longer than the people that found it, and it usually ends up run by non-Christians. Look at YMCA, Young Men's Christian. <laughs> what do you? Well, see. Well, how about this one? Lutheran Social Services. I suppose Luther would be real happy with his name on that if he knew what. All, do you know what all they do? The, the promoting abortion and all kinds of stuff in the name of a, of a Christian organization. So you, these things, the problem with them is they don't go away when the Christians that started them die. They just have a life of their own. Not too long ago, I worked for a company that installed office cubicles. And this was during the, the uh, 9-11 crisis. We're over here alongside the river at the, at the Red Cross, the American Red Cross. And a brand new building, brand new interior, brand new everything. And when 9-11 very little, if any, money out of the billions or millions of dollars that was raised. Very little of it came from people in, in New York City that was pensioned. And their administration costs were so large and their charity was so small that the percentages just don't die. And that tends to happen when something's around a long time, yes. Well, I don't see where, how does that follow? Oh, I see. So, because you're supposed to care for the poor, then you vote for the Al Gores of the world? Um, oh, yeah. Let me tell you about that. Back, I, you know, I, I used to do a lot of fishing on Lake Minnetonka, and one of the big problems was public access. Okay, on a weekend you know, you can't get your boat on the lake. So they wanted to put an access in over on this clear on the west side so that ordinary people, besides these rich people, live on the lake and put their boat in the water. You know who fought it? The Mondales and Humphreys that had, they owned all this property along there. And so these liberals went to court to make sure no poor people got to go on Lake Minnetonka because they didn't want to have to sit in their mansion and watch some poor guy in his little fishing boat go in front of their dock. And, and, and I saw that in the paper, and I thought, gee, yeah, that's about right. They, they, they care about the poor as long as they're somewhere else. Well, in responding to what you said, Doug, he was talking about giving your taxes and um, does that apply there so, so that you can separate the taxes? Well, we're, we're commanded to pay our taxes, but, and we're allowed to vote. All the Bible tells us to do is pay our taxes. Pray for our leaders as much as possible, live peaceably with all men. Our goal is to be able to live out our Christian lives, preach the gospel, and exist. Now, in America, we've been given certain citizenship privileges by God's providence. We're here in a country where we have the privilege of voting, which most people in history haven't had. And so, Christians 
are obviously can use their citizenship privileges. Paul did. He appealed to Rome when he had the chance to. So I would just say, this is, this is a privilege we had. Now you use it as you see fit, but I don't think, I don't think you can say voting for a certain candidate is a Christian virtue that discharges your duty for doing good. Uh, do, do you understand? <laughs> But, but well, you can argue both ways, okay? You can argue. You, if you want to do a political argument, somebody can say, "Well, I'm going to vote for the Democrats because the Bible tells us to give alms to the poor, and the Democrats are going to do that." Or so they say. Well, some another Christian can argue, "Well, I'm going to vote for the Republicans because the, the Repo- because the Bible tells us to resist evil, and the Democrats are promoting homosexuality, abortion, and every form of evil." So I'm going to resist evil by voting Republican. So you can argue either way. And so you, you, maybe I have to decide whether giving alms to the poor is more important than resisting evil. Yeah, what, what's the more important issue? I, there, is no, there is no political party that's going to discharge our Christian responsibilities for us. Do you, do you see what I mean? If they, remember that phrase. <laughs> I don't care which the party is. We still got to go out and do our own what we're supposed to do. God bless you.